No one is talking to you right now. You hear a voice, but there is no one talking. Vibrations in the air, the familiar pattern of syllables strung together into semi-grammatic melodies of language, but no one is speaking. There is no mind behind this, no personality attempting to communicate ideas through vocal cords to other eager minds, just the dark fingers of chaos strumming noise that by chance resembles words to some in this endless empty universe. But no one is speaking to you right now. There is no communication happening here. Just a gurgling babble that your mind, endlessly wishing to input patterns onto random occurrences, is interpreting as meaningful noise. But since your attention is held, how about take a moment to listen a little bit further. Listen to some more random noise, some more strange occurrences, and listen to the Post-Culture Podcast. Excerpts from my Nightmare Journal Part 1 I'm running down a dark hallway that seems to grow three yards for every yard I pass. The walls are lined with candlelit portraits of everyone I've ever cared for crying in horror and despair. I trip and fall on the red carpet, scrambling to escape the unknown malevolent force that is following my terror-soaked path. As I rise, I find myself face to face with a dark-robed figure. He pulls back the hood of his cloak to reveal a pale white face with black pits for eyes. Rows of steel shards are pierced through his lips in a grotesque parody of teeth. Placing a single clawed hand upon my forehead. He intones in a voice that gurgles like a pit of tar these words. High cholesterol at your age is a sign of certain heart disease. God move on the water. Apartment number one is the landlord's apartment, where you drop your rent, or what you pay instead of rent. The mail slot fits most human organs. Apartment number two is occupied by the whore, who will fulfill any pleasure for a price. His beer gut is decadently inviting, and his beard is ticklish. 
Apartment number three is always on fire. Don't take any of the fire there, no matter how badly you need it. They don't like when you steal their fire. Apartment number four is occupied by a pack of children who pretend to live there, who pretend to go to jobs and who pretend to have lives, who pretend to grow old and pretend to die. Apartment number five is haunted by the ghosts of all who died there. It is surprisingly crowded, and they don't all get along. Apartment number six is occupied by a large immigrant family. Larger than should be able to fit in a room. Thousands. What is happening in there? Apartment number seven is occupied by a quiet loner. He lives alone, eats alone, sleeps alone. He never leaves. He isn't there. Apartment number seven is empty. Apartment number eight is occupied by a living God. He heals the sick, cures the blind, occasionally eats a child. Apartment number nine is a portal to something. No one knows what, just something different. Something screaming. There is usually a crowd at apartment number nine. Apartment number 10 is where that weird guy lives. That guy who talks to dogs. The one who roams with dog packs at night. Apartment number 10 is where that weird dog lives. Apartment number 11 is both occupied and unoccupied. No one wants to open it to find out. Also, it smells weird in there. Apartment number 12 is where you live. It is a good home for you. Conveniently located, well-heated, comfortable. No, you can't leave. Stop asking. Truthful heart from one that lies. Though the man's may have called in the past, my love for you will be everlasting and bright. As bright as the stars that shine, and this wondrous night that has a thousand eyes. I live my life walking through a dream. Come on down to the zoo, where we are under new management. Not the super-intelligent howler monkeys that treat our patrons like fresh cattle to the slaughter. They were never in charge. That was a myth. We have a number of new exhibits down at the zoo, such as that normal man we all treat like an animal, and the mecha fish. You think a leopard can't change its spots? Ours can turn its skin inside out, and we can't do anything to stop it. Right now, a special offer for all zoo members. We will happily cook and serve you any animal or fellow patron that you kill on zoo property with your complimentary membership knife. Drag the kids on down to the zoo. Let them throw hunks of unidentifiable meat into that tank of floating sentient eyeballs that just showed up one day without anyone knowing where it came from. Let them play in the dirt pit. Who knows what's buried in there? 
Let them pet that talking zebra's skull so that they can see their future foretold in a series of vivid, incomprehensible hieroglyphics. This weekend only at the zoo, we have Satan trapped in a cage, and we poke him in the ass with a jagged tree branch every hour on the hour. Don't worry, it's a pretty good cage. His screams make our eyes bleed, and the sun is burning red. Next month at the zoo, free admission if you devour a live snake whole right in front of us. Also, we'll be setting a random animal loose every day to wander the park and extract its revenge. Each Tuesday, you are the true animal. Purchase a lifetime membership and we'll have one of your enemies killed by an army of trained chimps. Come on down to the zoo. God has forsaken us all and our crimes deserve no mercy. Excerpts from my Nightmare Journal Part 2 My apartment no longer makes sense. I open the door to the bedroom and find myself in the kitchen. I go back through the same door and now I'm in the living room, standing in front of the television with no door behind me. The hallway is longer than I remember, and sometimes it isn't there at all. I try to leave and just end up back inside. Lights only make corners darker and more imperceptible, providing just enough light to distort but never enough to clarify. And across every wall, written in a pale green glow, are threats that it will soon be revealed how little I know about my job and how I will be unmasked as a fraud who is woefully unprepared for real responsibility. Vernon Longfellow's Tales of the Great Depression We didn't have much to live on when the Depression started, so when the bank went bust and we lost our savings, my daddy picked the three fattest of my siblings and sold them as dock bumpers to the man who ran the James River Ferry. This meant some money to buy grain for the fields, three less mouths to feed, and a clear message to the rest of us to lay off the pie for a while or suffer the consequences. Whenever one of us kids would start asking for seconds, Paul would start muttering about how that fat German butcher over in Halsey was always looking for cheap sausage filler. People collecting scrap metal had nabbed up all the tin cans in town, so my friends and I used to kick this Chinese kid down a dirt road. At least he said he was Chinese. Looking back on it, I think he was just some okie who liked getting kicked around. The moaning and the erection were probably a giveaway, but those were more innocent times. I remember this one time I came home from school early because the principal said they didn't have enough money to educate a bunch of hopeless dullards like us and found Pa rolling around in the hayloft, giggling and only wearing one of Ma's brassiers. 
He said he was doing it because he had worn out all of his own women's undergarments and had to use his wife's in order to fulfill his perverted daydreams. Paul was never really any good with excuses. Back in the 30s, I used to masturbate to Mae West a lot. That's not really a story. In 34, the crops failed, and out of desperation, my sister Esther tried making soup out of some funny weeds that were growing around the outhouse. We found her three days later, married to a jazz musician and attempting to vote for a socialist. We took her home, and from then on, every day before supper, Pa would beat her with a hickory stick to keep her from being peculiar. After a while, we all began to wonder how Daddy was keeping his weight up when we had been living on apple core and crabgrass stew for the last season. In particular, we were curious to know why we were a few siblings short recently, and why Daddy was paying hush money to that German sausage maker. I also masturbated to Gertrude Stein a lot back then. Not so proud of that one. One time, my brother Clevis tried selling apples to earn a little extra money for the family. However, it occurred to him that holding a box of projectiles gave him a distinct advantage in any financial transactions, and pretty soon he wasn't so much selling people apples as knocking people senseless with apples and then stealing their wallets. Clevis got a little over his head, though, when he tried to rob the First National Bank with a grapefruit half. Sure, he got away with a bundle, since the bank's safe seemed oddly susceptible to citric acid, but from then on, J. Edgar Hoover had our phone tapped. At least that's what Pa said was the reason for all those obscene calls. Considering our phone system was two tin cans with some string running between them, with one can in the living room and the other in a closet where we could hear Daddy's wheezing, I think the old man may have been making up stuff again. Mama died in 35. Daddy said it was just her time, but a diet of stale bread and locusts probably didn't help. We tried to have her buried in the churchyard, but the preacher turned us out, saying he wanted nothing to do with our family because Daddy was a cross-dressing cannibal pervert and us kids were a bunch of pig-fucking criminals. We tried to bury her in the field. We needed the fertilizer. But by that time, the soil was so loose, the next strong wind blew away the mound, and we found the corpse a few days later on top of our neighbor's outhouse. When we came by to fetch her, old Jeb said he'd been wondering why that hole in the roof had stopped leaking. Finally, Paul found a proper burial spot, though he wouldn't tell us where it was, and a few of us suspected he had just gone and fed her to a bear. That spring, a pack of feral dogs drove off the sheriff and started living in the jailhouse. Everyone thought the town was going to hell until the dogs managed to thwart that bank robbery. Things got real peaceful after that. One day, me and the other children noticed that the stale bread seemed to be a lot more stale than usual. Mary Jo, who was always a little quicker on the uptake than the rest of us, noted that those spare bricks from when Daddy rebuilt the outhouse weren't piled out back anymore, and it seemed Pa had found a clever new way to cut back on the grocery bill. We tried to make the best of it, but when your only protein source is a piece of roadkill you fought a bobcat for, and whatever body parts happened to have fallen off you that evening, then you're starting to run low on culinary options. Once, while masturbating to Hedy Lamar, 
I started to think of Basil Rathbone and couldn't stop. The next day, I was sure everyone could tell. Finally, in 36, Pa came to us to say he couldn't afford to pay the mortgage, so we were all going to move to California. Of course, by this time, us consisted of me and this rundown old goat daddy had taken to calling Ma. And I was of a mind that a sudden move had more to do with a pile of skeletons in the fruit cellar. The old run-off-to-join-the-circus excuse had worn thin around the time I found Mary Jo's rosary beads in Daddy's stockpot, and the triplets were down to just Steve and a couple of buckets with faces painted on them that had been shoved into the crib with him. When Pa asked me to come down and help fix some vittles for the road, I grabbed my suitcase and my least-stained movie magazines and snuck down the drain pipe, hightailing it to the train station. Put it there, boy, we'll... Show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Well, I'm going to tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. cold, empty bottom of the planet, a group of intrepid men work to expand our understanding of nature and the world around us. Out into the ether they send messages, hoping to reach us, hoping to let us know what they have seen. These are the communications from Ice Station Yankee. So we've arrived. So far, we're adjusting poorly. Partly this is due to the fact that none of us really want to be here, assigned to the freezing rectum of existence on a mission to advance the cause of science by getting frostbite on our dicks. Partly it's because the conditions here inside the research station are pretty shit. The entertainment library consists of seasons three and six of Friends, and some VHS tapes of Law & Order, taped off the USA Network, circa 2002. I don't know if the guys expected internet access or something like that, but we pulled together all of our available pornography, and it turned out to be a pretty meager pile. Mostly Victoria's Secrets catalogs, a couple of uh, crumpled pieces of bestiality porn printed out on an inkjet printer, and a couple of photos of Dave's mom. This does not bode well. This is ostensibly a research station, though exactly what we're supposed to be researching is a little vague. If you want to know what happens when you trap a group of social malcontents together with nothing to do for an entire Antarctic winter in a collection of barely livable cinder block buildings, then you've set up a fine experiment. I can already tell you that it leads to chronic masturbation and anger management issues. Fascinating results, I'm sure. More to follow. Though seriously, if you could send us a blanket or something, it would be appreciated. 
trying to keep it warm using the heating system here is kind of like trying to put out a chemical fire by yelling at it. That may seem an odd analogy, but it's been on my mind recently after seeing our lab workers' response to a similar safety concern earlier today, which is making me question this team's fitness for their individual roles. Our meteorologist, for example, screamed at a cloud yesterday, and our pilot had an epileptic fit while climbing a stepladder this afternoon. But seriously, it's fucking cold. An ice bridge formed between Dave's dick and the toilet the other day while he was taking a piss. He was stuck there for a few hours. Yeah, we heard his yelling, but uh, it was pretty funny to just kind of leave him like that, so we raided his trunk for more pictures of his mom. Most that's been happening these first few days has just been us getting to know each other, learning each other's interests, figuring out which of us is psychologically the weakest, discovering which of us has a loaded gun, seeing which one of us we can gang up on to make them do all the most demeaning work, finding out who knows how to make meth, finding out what everyone is willing to barter for meth, seeing who ODs on meth the fastest, the usual guy shit. There's also been some gambling going on. Seeing as we don't have access to professional sports, though, we've devolved back to the friendly wagers of our ancestors. Who has the smallest dick? Who can eat the most snow? Who will commit suicide first? Who can do the most push-ups on meth? As there's no need for money out here, we don't have a lot of legal tender to trade with, so we've also reverted to the currency of our ancestors as well, i.e. hand jobs and pot. That we've nearly exhausted all the standard forms of human interaction in these first few days is a little concerning, and I'm not looking forward to what's going to happen when we start to get really bored. Excerpts from my Nightmare Journal Part 3 I've somehow melted through the sidewalk, which is now hardened around me. My head from the chin-up is sticking out, as is my left hand, which grasps feebly at those who pass me by without a care for my misfortune. People walk around me, never looking down and occasionally stepping on my face, all headed towards some point behind me and none noticing me. As the swarming masses thin out, one indistinct man kneels down to me. We're all going to the Flaming Lips concert, he says. Sorry you can't make it. He walks away, leaving me alone in the fading twilight, unable to move and stewing in regret and self-pity. As darkness falls, the squids come. They may walk by day, they may walk by night, they can bring the atomic bomb, but the devil and the pilot can't make me run. They may walk by day, they may walk by night, they can bring the atomic bomb, but the devil and the pilot can't make me run. They can go with the satellite, they can do what they like, I ain't have to fight, I don't have to cry, they can't run at all, why don't stop the war before they destroy us all? Assorted Thoughts Jimmy Fallon, dressed as Neil Young, singing the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme as men with pistols randomly murder members of the studio audience. 
my Starbucks order. A squirming cup of black eggs containing the concentrated nightmares of my now and future children. The movie Footloose, only instead of dancing, it's masturbating. A podcast that is just your nightmares read back to you by a clown. Thought. Magicians never reveal their secrets, but their true secret is that they were lonely children who remained virgins well into adulthood. The earth bursts into trillions of moths who fly off into space. We float away in our dissipating atmosphere, begging them to come back. We literally have billions of dollars worth of public infrastructure dedicated to making sure we don't have to deal with our own shit. Life hack: Eat your own foot. No need to eat feet sold to us by corporate agriculture. Note to self. Ask barista about the sock puppets with knives nightmare. Idea. Google Glass, but it makes numbers appear on total strangers' foreheads and keeps giving you directions to where you keep a sharpened axe. Thought. Episodic narratives are more interesting if you take their accumulated plots seriously. Like how in Columbo, every rich person in the city is a murderer. I want a detective series where every murder that would normally happen during an eight-season run all happens in a matter of days. Thought. Bitcoin-powered sex Tesla. The problem with your feelings is that they are feelings, and you shouldn't have those. Thank you for listening to the Post Culture Podcast, Episode One: Our Bodies Will Not Be Found. This has been a production of the Post Culture Review. You can also follow us on Twitter at Post Cult. Rev, that is P-O-S-T-C-U-L-T-R-E-V. We are also on Facebook. Music in this episode was provided by a number of different artists. Our opening theme music was provided by The Fourth Shift. You can follow them at soundcloud.com slash fourth shift. The particular track was called Night Work 2. During the apartments, we played The Night as a Thousand Eyes, performed by the Johnny Hepper Quartet, with Sarah Oshling on vocals. You can follow them at soundcloud.com slash Sarah, S-A-R-A, Sarah Sings Jazz. Our closing theme for this episode was performed by the Blue Heels. Special thanks to Twitter user at Some Clever Thing for providing the song for us. All other songs courtesy of the Alan Lomax collection. I hope that this episode has been especially pleasurable for you. I hope that anything has been especially pleasurable for you. I just hope.